Hi, welcome back to Foreign Office. This is Michael Weiss. I'm Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. We're doing a twofer this week on the GRU, given the rather seismic disclosures that have come out of both Czechia and Bulgaria within the last two weeks. And I thought no better person to discuss the Czech angle of this story than uh, my friend and colleague Jakub Janda. He's the director of the European Values Center for Security Policy and one of the most uh, well-read and knowledgeable people about Russia espionage and influence operations in Europe, but obviously because he's based in Prague, he has a, a specialism on uh, influence and intelligence operations in, in Czechia. Jakob, it's great to have you on. I'm wondering, you know, everybody in the West has been sort of focused on this incredible story of the GRU Sabotage Assassination Unit 29155, responsible already, as we knew, for the Skripal assassination attempt, abortive coup in Montenegro, destabilization campaigns in Moldova, perhaps even interference in the Catalan referendum in Spain. But now we find out that they blew up an ammunitions depot in Czechia in 2014. So this is one of the earliest known operations of this unit, which is sort of a 21st century smirsh. It now seems we can draw, paint a, a more accurate picture of what was going on. I mean, this all had to do with the war just then starting in Ukraine, uh, the annexation of Crimea, but also the war that broke out in Donbass. Tell us what happened. Also, just sort of why it's taken seven years for this operation to be exposed. I mean, what, why so long for, you know, putting together the who, what, where, and how? And, and also, I mean, we just spoke to Christo Grozev, from Bellingcat, who noted in his analysis that you know two of the operatives that did this operation in 2014, uh, Mishkin and Chepiga, are the same guys who tried to kill Skripal with Novichok in 2018, and they used the same cover names or cover identities to fly into Czechia four years before. I mean, just horrible tradecraft, and yet again, seven years to figure out who done it. What do we need to know about this story? Thanks, Mike, for having me. To give you the timeline, so October 2014, actually what happened was that uh, two GRU officers uh, actually flew from Moscow to Prague. They spent a night in Prague. They went to Ostrava, another city inside of the Czech Republic. They spent uh, some time there in a hotel. And uh, they actually took approximately 60-minute ride from Ostrava to uh, the ammunition depot in a, a small village called Vrbětice, which is uh, close to the border between Czech Republic and Slovakia on the Czech side. And uh, what happened was that uh, they were actually quite likely, at least that's what police information reported by the Czech media says, is that most likely those GRU officers were actually invited uh, or they booked an uh, entry point, let's say, entry ticket into the ammunition depot, which was run by a private company by a Czech private company. So they, they were saying they are basically arms inspectors. They were supposed to look into the ammunition, into the quality of that. That was most likely their cover story. What looks like is that they were uh, allowed to get in. I don't know really what happened inside, but what we know is that uh, later, a uh, couple of days, uh, or actually sometime after they left, the depot actually exploded killing uh, two Czech citizens who are basically uh, civilian guards of that uh, or employees of that private company, which was storing the ammunition. So those Czech, two Czech citizens died. Th those two GRU officers left the place uh, by car to Austria and they flew from Vienna to back to Moscow. They had a support team, which actually Bellingcat uncovered. So you know the, the story around 
around them, yeah. quite likely basically a support team for this operation, also led by a very high-ranking GRU general, which which is something what I think is quite new to in, in this context. So those two GRU officers left. We know that uh, those explosions happened um, I mean, there was one explosion and a second one following inside of this uh, of this uh, large venue, and uh, actually hundreds of Czech citizens had to be evacuated because there was there were some multiple explosions inside of that venue. Quite large material costs were actually suffered by basically everybody around the place. More than one billion Czech crowns, which is quite a lot of money, actually was had to be used for making sure the damages were repaired. So that was quite a big case in two thousand in fall of two thousand. 14. But what we know, uh, I mean, back then, almost nobody expected that there would be a human touch uh, into this tragedy. It was actually very reported among, I would say, Czech population, but uh, it wasn't seen as a national security incident. It was basically seen as an accident. And uh, so the police opened an investigation because obviously two Czech citizens died, but the, but the Czech police actually closed out in this investigation a year later in 2015, basically with no real result because like everything was uh, trashed to pieces because of those explosions. And since there was a lot of uh, ammunition around the place, it means that you cannot just say, okay, so this was the explosive used because there was so much of explosives which actually exploded on the place. So it was was quite impossible to find out what what caused the incident, what caused this. So 2015, Czech police closed out the investigation or suspended it, saying basically, we don't know who did it. But uh, after 2018, after GRU... Uh, actually tried to poison Sergei Skripal and his daughter in Salisbury in the UK. UK intelligence agencies clearly shared some of their knowledge on uh, on those GRU officers uh, and their cover identities and fake passports. This intelligence was re- was received by Czech police and Czech agencies, which uh, paired up those uh, identities or fake identities, cover identities. And uh, they, they saw that uh, at least... Those two GRU officers, those are the no two which are reported, have actually traveled in, in the Czech territory at the same time when this incident in Verbechice was happening. So the Czech police actually opened the reopened the investigation in 2018, uh, and they started to look into all those pieces of, of evidence. And uh, to my knowledge, other intelligence by our allies, meaning allies of the Czech Republic, so likely NATO countries. At the end, uh, long story short, um, in uh, early 2021, the, the investigation came to a preliminary conclusion saying the GRU was involved and there were other pieces of this uh, put together. And just two weeks from uh, ago, uh, actually, Czech government went public and said, well, GRU was involved. We are expelling 18 GRU and SVR officers hiding at the Russian embassy in Prague. And then we have a follow-up diplomatic uh, struggle with Russia. So more or less, this is what happened in Russia. You know, the reporting has been somewhat clarified by Bellingcat in terms of the, the the ammunition that was being stored in this depot. And as you know, I mean, one of the other cases that has been heavily investigated for the past several years was the attempted poisoning, well, the, no, the, the actual poisoning, but attempted murder of Emilian Gebrev, a, a Bulgarian arms dealer. I had gone to Sofia two years ago now to interview Gebrev, actually with Christo from Bellingcat. And he was sort of uh, full of all kinds of other theories that he had somehow run afoul of Bulgarian oligarchs or possibly even the prime minister, and that there was an internal Bulgarian political issue, which was outsourced to the Russian services. So he thought he was being killed by G 
TRU operatives at the behest of his own government or vested interests. But now it turns out very likely, no, it's because he was an arms dealer and he was procuring munitions and armaments through NATO countries with the consent of his own Bulgarian government for the use in two countries that Russia has gone to war with, right? Georgia, Mm -hmm. two shipments or two consignments, 2008 was the first, 2011 was the second, and Ukraine. What do we know about any kind of, I mean, the company that that Gebrev owns in Bulgaria is called uh, Emco or EMCO. What do we know about any Emco material or ammo that was being stored in this depot? I mean, has that been confirmed by Czech reporting or is that still speculative? To my knowledge, it has been reported and it has been confirmed that actually Mr. Gebrev's activities were the reason why the GRU attacked on the Czech soil. The yeah. Czech police investigation actually says that quite likely their understanding is that uh, the intent of the GRU officers was not really to attack inside of the Czech Republic on the Czech soil. Quite likely, they have put some explosive systems inside of the ammunition, which was supposed to be, it was stored, but it was supposed to be moved away from the ammunition depot outside of the Czech Republic. And uh, the original plan, at least how the Czech police explains this internally, but it was reported publicly. Yeah. Czech police thinks that the, the explosions were supposed to happen outside of the Czech territory to, at, at one point, uh, I would say, uh, kill the shipment or kill, kill the, the material itself, but also show uh, Gebrev actually to be a non-reliable partner uh-huh. to everybody else. I mean, to the Ukrainians, quite likely, I assume to other, other NATO allies if they want to do something with him. So to show that he is the one who cannot deliver even if, if, he, if, if stuff is ordered from him. So this is the Czech police version, which, uh, which is the reason why, uh, why it's, it's actually expected that uh, the Czech ammunition depot itself was not the, the intended or planned uh, place of attack. That's uh, what happened most quite likely, according to the Czech police, was that the, those two Czech citizens who were basically guarding the place quite likely opened something or they, they actually initiated the explosive system and then every, everything went to pieces. This is actually how it's understood here. I see. What's interesting about this unit is, as you no doubt know, and and we talked about this with Christo just this morning, in fact, we're recording both of these episodes back to back, is that they have their most spectacular operations are typically, in technical terms, failures, right? They did not kill Skripal. There was no successful coup in Montenegro. In this case, as you as you just said, they, they wanted to have the ammunition in transit and then explode as if just because it was faulty or, or substandard quality, thereby calling into question Gebrev's credibility as, a, as an arms dealer. Uh, and yet, even in their, their tactical failures, there is a kind of strategic victory here. I mean, the fact of the matter is they did destroy the ammunition. They may have done it in a more cack-handed or embarrassing manner. They did nearly kill Gebrev and they put him out of commission for a spell. Mm-hmm. Uh, they poisoned him twice in Bulgaria, once in Sofia and and another time at the Bulgarian seaside. And these are heroes of the Russian Federation. They've been given state honors. What does this tell you about the GRU's tradecraft and also their their willingness to be, I don't know, I mean, more reckless, less risk averse, I should say, than other services, particularly the SVR. They seem to be this kind of like battering ram of the Russian defense ministry. And yet, you know, we catch them red-handed, even if it does take seven years in this case, but who knows what else they've got up to that we st- simply haven't pieced together, right? I mean, there, there, this is clearly 
not the only uh, operation that, that that has been kind of lurking under the radar. I mean, Christo just told me that if you look at all of the, the sort of circumstantial evidence in terms of their flight patterns or their travel itineraries and so on, what we know of confirmed operations is only, I think, 15%, he said, of the total. So in other words, 85% of where they've been around the world, no doubt on official GRU business, we still have no idea what they got up to, whether it was murdering people or blowing up things, making things look like accidents that were in fact, you know, evidence of foul play. I mean, how do you rate these guys as somebody who, who studies the services? I think uh, many Western observers actually saw, for example, the Skripal attack in 2018 as a major failure of the GRU because they were exposed after the attack. But uh, I mean, at least people I talk to within the European national security establishments and the intelligence communities, they see it as a major success for Russia right. for, for two reasons. One, the target audience clearly was, uh, I would say, people who still are working for the Russian state, for the Kremlin. And the intent was to scare them off and basically to send a message saying, well, if you become a traitor, if you betray the Russian Federation or the Russian intelligence services, we will find you regardless where you are or regardless who protects you, whether it's the MI5, we will still try to get you and we, you will quite likely die or you will have to fear all of your life. So that was the intent. And to some extent, and I think you could say this was actually achieved. So it was a success for the GRU at this level. Then at the same time, it, it's not a real problem if they were actually exposed after the operation, because we know that the, the, the Salisbury attack was successful at the, at, the, at the moment where, I mean, at the end, they, they delivered what they wanted, technically didn't work out for them, but still they were not caught red-handed inside of the UK, they, they left. Right. So, th so that was a success. And the second level of success, unfortunately for us as Europeans or Western allies, is that uh, the punishment for Russia for the Skripal poisoning was very weak. Everybody here in across Europe is saying, look, we caught them red-handed 2018, we punished them. But if you look over, let's say, how deterrent, or deterrence works, the question is, so we, the one actor, let's say Russia does something bad, we punish them. Did we punish them enough so they will not do it again? Right. And then if you look over at what actually happened, yes, 153 Russian intelligence officers under diplomatic cover expelled in 2018 by multiple countries and run Russian consulate in Seattle being closed. That's, that seems quite big. But then if you look through the eyes of the old Russian regime saying like, was this a real punishment for core interests of the Kremlin? My response would be not really. And now when we see this response to, I mean, so far the response to this Verbetitsa incident, this GRU attack in 2014 on the Czech soil, so far we see very symbolic PNGs, very symbolic expelling from European countries. So I'm happy that it, it does exist, but we cannot really call this deterrence or, or punishment of the Kremlin. Those are very symbolic moves where we are basically saying, look, we know about it and we are pretending that we are punishing you for it, uh, which is bad. Well, and also, I mean, guys working under diplomatic cover at embassies and consulates are not the ones yeah. blowing things mm -hmm. up or mm -hmm. trying to kill people on European soil, right? I mean, these operatives came in, mm -hmm. you know, under false identities and one thing Christo said, he said, there, there's no beginning of a conversation or debate about is Europe doing enough until and unless there is a continent-wide, EU-wide mm -hmm. biometric system yep. for entry into yep. all of the member states, right? I mean, you, you might be able to send some, you know, a GRU operative to, say, Austria or to Germany or to, to the UK once, but once he conducts an operation, he'll never be, come back in, even if he uses a thousand and one different 
cover names because his face and his biometric data can't be faked, right? That seems to me a very clear-cut deterrent capability that has yet to be invoked. And I mean, look, there, there's also, frankly speaking, from the Czech political establishment, and, and I'm, I'm very keen mm-hmm. to hear your analysis on this, but we all thought, wow, what a great success. You know, the, 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 you know, Prague has taken the decision to expel 18 Russian spies from their soil. They created a real diplomatic furor over this. And yet you've got, you know, your prime minister got getting up there and saying, well, this wasn't an act of state terrorism. This was a, an operation by a security service. I mean, kind of hedging his, his, his words very carefully so as not to, to piss off Moscow too much. And then, I mean, you know, President Zemen, who you've written extensively <laughs> about as being... I mean, essentially, almost the president of, of the yeah. Russian Federation, mm-hmm. more so than the, <laughs> there seems to be a lot of homegrown apologetics and disinformation about what's taken place, which works to to a great disadvantage, because if the if the, the victimized or the target country is not speaking with one voice about this as an act of state terrorism or, you know, as a, as a grave violation of international norms and the Vienna Convention and so on. It's sort of inviting for the Russians to try their luck yet again, right? True. I mean, Czech Republic is a sad example of, of a state where Russian elite capture is very successful. If you look to the Czech Republic from the outside, you see the president of the country who is essentially an asset of Russia and China at the same time. The, the prime minister is trying to balance himself. He is quite well corrupted. He has many corruption scandals. Uh, so he's in a very weak yeah. position. And currently he actually leads a minority government, which means that he is actually dependent on a communist party, which sits in the parliament and gives their demands to him and then he actually has to obey if he wants their support. Yeah. This is how he's been governing the country for the last three and a half years. As we know, communist parties, as always, and the Czech one very specific, specifically, are tools of Russia, which are the tools of Moscow or the Soviet Union before that. So essentially, you have a government which is dependent on a, a Russian hand, a Russian-controlled president and Russian-controlled communist party, which tells you that politically, the current government is very, very weak. And uh, I mean, given this political context, I'm actually quite well positively surprised that we actually had some level of response because as in many European countries we actually have a I would say quite an internal clash between the national security establishment which is quite strong in the Czech Republic and the institutions and uh, I would say quite well elite captured individuals who are in the government or running the presidential office at this moment so there is is this clash which is not so visible publicly but in, in moments of crisis like these ones we know the Russians I mean, the Russian government actually mobilizes all of their assets and proxies because they want, at the end, they want no real tough reaction. They, they don't want any punishment for Russia because of this GRU attack. So they are mobilizing everything they have for the last two weeks uh, across Prague. And I would say they are quite successful because, as you said, the prime minister has been backing down in his statements. We see very weak reaction by the Czech government. If we compare it to the 2018 UK after Skripal, we have actually saw what the UK government did calling allies, you know, calling briefings for allies and uh, basically pushing out a coalition which would together respond to Russia. And it did to some extent in 2018. This is not something what the Czech government would be doing today. To uh, It's pretty sad to say it, but this is how, how it looks like now. Yeah. So, I mean, there is one positive aspect coming out of this. So far, uh, there were actually two waves of explosions, uh, which means that over 80 Russian intelligence officers and diplomats 
all with diplomatic passports will be leaving Prague till end of till end of May, which means that a huge Russian embassy, or we call it the Residentura, actually will be cropped down from approximately 130, including the consulates, to some between 40 and 50, which is a huge decrease, which finally actually this is happening. I mean, this is not a real punishment for Russia, given what happened, but at least there is something what actually is positive based on all of this political turmoil. So I think this is what I mean, many people are cheering about, because if you imagine, let's say 130 official Russian representation in the on the Czech soil, two consulates, one embassy, just imagine all everything they do, mainly against other countries like Germany, which we are bordering with, and imagine how much personnel you would have to have in the Czech counterintelligence agencies to actually put a real-time surveillance on all of them. This is actually impossible in the in the area of capacity. So for that reason, this is a good news that finally the Russian residentura, which has been mainly used against Germany, will be diminished at least. But politically, you're right, it's a good example of basically hybrid warfare scenario where Russia attacks and then when Czech Republic wants to basically push back, all of the Russian assets and proxies are mobilized and the reaction at the end is very weak, which only shows you the level of sovereignty we have actually lost because of various Russian elite captured operations, which have been successful and now we, we see how successful they are. And, you know, the other aspect of the story that I don't think is getting enough attention is the operatives from the GRU didn't, they all, they all didn't fly into Czechia, right? I mean, they flew into Austria, into Hungary. So other countries in Europe have been implicated in this operation by being essentially the, the receptacle for these guys coming from Moscow. You know, it stands to reason that if your soil is being used in whatever capacity to abet a, an act of state terrorism such as this, you should stand in solidarity with your NATO and European Union ally and conduct a few more expulsions yourself, right? I mean, you know, Austria and Hungary are, are very weak links in European <laughs> solidarity and yeah. anti-Kremlin sentiment, as you know, and, and there's probably a reason why they flew into those countries. But um, yeah, I mean, it is kind of disheartening to see that there isn't a kind of all of EU call to arms on this, you know, and I have to say, you know, this, this also, it precedes, but I guess also follows because this is a rolling story, a rather lackluster response to uh, Navalny's plight, at least as it was last week before he ended his hunger strike, you know, Angela Merkel coming out and reaffirming her support for Nord Stream 2, the European Union coming out and saying, we're not planning any preemptive sanctions for Navalny, nor are we planning any for the military buildup, the then military buildup at the at the Ukraine border by Russia. Again, and, and this is something that happened seven years ago. It was, it was brought to light recently, but I, I can't see if you're sitting in the Kremlin thinking that, that you have been contained or deterred or dissuaded from carrying on as usual in any way. One thing that, that Christo mentioned is I asked him, we, the last time I'd spoken to him, I, he was very skeptical of the GRU Taliban bounty story, which I don't know if you follow the way the American media has been covering this, but it's been very politicized. And, and frankly, the reporting has not been good from a lot of different places because the CIA never backed down from its moderate confidence assessment that this indeed was taking place. And, you know, the, the speculation was this is all drawn from very dodgy Taliban interrogation uh, or detainee interrogations. In fact, no, there was a good piece that suggested there were five pillars to the CIA allegation. One, 
was detainee interrogations, but that's probably the weakest pillar. The other were financial streams that had been intercepted. Another was just the kind of tried and true methodology of Unit 29155. I mean, these, this is a assassination sabotage squad. You know, they don't they don't pay money to redecorate caves in Waziristan <laughs> for Islamist insurgents, right? But another pillar, which is pr- probably the most important, was a human intelligence capability. And I read that as, as meaning the CIA has got assets in Russia. Russian military intelligence, and they are being fed very detailed and very credible information. You know, I put it to you because this strikes me as not so coincidental. You have this, you know, big investigation in Bulgaria, which has now led to the expulsion of one Russian intelligence officer from Sofia. You guys have expelled some 80. Yeah, some 80, around 80, around 80 altogether. Yeah. All of these things are are taking place in a very short period of time. And you'd, you'd mentioned, you know, clearly the British services shared their intelligence with your country's services. No doubt, no doubt the United States has been all over this. And no doubt the United States has a very good understanding of what Unit 29155 has done and where they've traveled. I mean, the CIA can read Bellingcat as well as you and I can, so they have all of that open source data, but they have their own methods too. There's gonna be more coming out. Without question. And we now know that the disincentive for doing crazy things, I mean, you know, setting things off, burning down buildings, you know, igniting munition stockpiles on European soil, the the disincentive is, is negligible for the Kremlin. So it stands to reason, sure, why wouldn't they pay the Taliban and members of the Haqqani network to take up arms and, and try to kill American, British, NATO soldiers in, in a Middle Eastern war zone, right? I mean, what what do you suspect, uh, Jakob, that going to come to light in the near future. Are you hearing from your sources that, you know, indeed, the, the last 10 years has been very, very lucrative, or I should say, fruitful for this GRU smash and grab unit? To my knowledge, what I've been hearing is that quite that we might see more exposures, more information coming to light over, let's say, recent, but let's say older cases uh, where Russian intel has been operating across Europe quite freely. Yeah. And uh, because quite often uh, the cases that, uh, let's say, US or UK uh, signals intelligence actually gathers knowledge of what happens. They give it to the local local authorities like German, Czech, I mean, Austrian, other uh, intelligence agencies, and they tell them what's happening or ask them, could you follow on those guys for us? And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But if this does not reach to a political level or to real, let's say, terrorism or murder style level, quite often the intelligences who are on the same page, quite often, I mean, German, Czech, other, I mean, UK, UK agencies uh, don't seem to have a major problem between them, at least to my knowledge, but they can share with, between each other but if their own recipients, meaning their own political leaders who actually make the calls, what, what politically to do, if the, the, those people are not listening or not willing to take action on Russia, be it the German chancellor, be it, uh, I mean, Czech prime minister or others, then the intelligences are actually, they have the knowledge. Yes, they can leak it. And I, I, I expect they often do it, but they can do quite little if there isn't like a direct terrorist attack, they, they would be allowed to stop with the police force. So quite often the, this kind of uh, frustration quite often actually is uh, discussed among European intelligence officers because what they can do, I mean, unlike the FBI, most of European intelligence agencies do not have law enforcement or executive powers. They are essentially intelligence gathering agencies, given our history you know, with the Soviet occupation, but also with the, with the Nazi regime in the past. 
the, let's say if, if countries are working more or less fine at the intelligence level, intelligence country intelligence level, that's good. But then right. your political level, it really depends how they decide. And if they have commercial interests like Nord Stream 2 with Germany or let's say elite capture like in the Czech Republic, there you could do very little. But then you, you come to countries which are actually, uh, they have, the elite corruption is so big that it actually, that it means that the local law enforcement or intelligence agencies are effectively crippled. And that's the case of Austria. To some extent, there's the case of Hungary as well. And uh, I hope not Czech Republic at this moment, it, it, not yet, but if you have like a political establishment, which is essentially serving Russian interests, law long term, then you get to the point where you actually cripple your own uh, national security establishment. And then it means that you actually get, become blind because your allies will not trust you. They will not trust you with counterintelligence information. That's the case of Austria, which is actually excluded from much of the intel sharing on Russia-related matters because nobody really trusts them, uh, which means that they are like a safe haven, safe base for Russian intelligence, the same way how Austria is run today. Uh, sorry, Greece run today. Again, I mean, they are, at least to my knowledge, they are uh, Russian activities against Ukraine or against Central European countries being commanded and operated from Hungarian soil, and Hungarian government is fine with that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's our problem, and it becomes very political, which means that you would have to really go politically after Viktor Orban and tell him, look, you, what you are doing with the Russians is actually hurting our own citizen in, for example, Czech Republic. Yeah. You have to stop it. But that's not happening at this moment. It's interesting that you bring up the Hungarian example because you recall from several years ago the story about the neo-Nazi training camp that was being run on Hungarian soil. And it was being supervised by GRU officers who were under diplomatic cover out of the embassy in Budapest, right? Now it comes to light that part of this, you know, Czech-Russian uh, drama that's playing out this month, that the GRU was also training paramilitary forces, Czech citizens, to go fight on behalf of pro-Russian forces in Ukraine. Tell us a little bit about this story, too. Mm -hmm. Yep. Just recently, Czech police forces actually uh, arrested... Uh, between five and 20 individuals. Some of them are arrested. Some of them will be arrested quite soon because of their, their the evidence is coming to light. There is a group of Czech citizens who have actually been, I would say, recruited, organized, and quite, quite often helped in training by Russian intelligence. Uh, and those individuals were actually sent or traveled to Donbass. They were fighting for Russian terrorists over there. Quite often they try to come back from, from this engagement. So most of those arrested Czech citizens are actually uh, will be standing in court with uh, crimes of terrorism, support of terrorism, meaning financial support of terrorism, or uh, other terrorism related charges. So they are facing up to, I mean, 10 to 20 years in jail if they get convicted, which means that this is a very hard case of essentially the Russian state organizing Czech citizens into terrorism on the Czech soil. So this is something what we never seen publicly before. There were individual uh, Czech citizens who were arrested because of terrorism charges related to Ukraine, meaning they fought in Ukraine against Ukraine. But this is a big group which was arrested altogether. And uh, more, more information will be coming to light over who exactly was training them and who exactly was recruiting them. Because most of those officers were actually using diplomatic cover. And uh, now finally, we have those uh, criminal charges being brought against the, the, the whole group. And presumably some of the people who were using diplomatic cover to train these guys have now been expelled or are about to be expelled. 
Actually, that's interesting because Czech government expelled uh, uh, SVR and GRU officers, those who are known to the Czech agencies, but those who are only 18 out of approximately 130 altogether Russian diplomatic personnel on the Czech soil. So only part of them were really expelled, meaning the FSB is staying so far, at least according to public information. And uh, the problem we have is that the second wave, those approximately 60 plus Russians leaving, they are not direct expulsion. So this is not like... Czech, Czech government saying this specific Russian uh, diplomat is leaving, but Czech, Czech government is actually using uh, Vienna Convention Article Number 11, which says we can actually limit the, the, the total number. We can put a cap on the final total number of the Russian diplomatic personnel on the Czech territory, which means that the Russian government can actually choose which individuals are staying and which are leaving so that they could fill in the total number Czech government gives them. Yeah. which means that they could actually cherry pick which, which uh, Intel offices they are going to uh, leave here in Prague and which will be going home. Interesting. Jakob, I mean, we could talk for days about this. It's, it's such a fascinating <laughs> uh, story, it's particularly the, the political aspects of it too, which yeah. unfortunately have, have only acted in, in, at least in retrospect, it seems to be the case that they've acted as an accomplice mm-hmm. to hostile foreign intelligence operations conducted on European soil. And, you know, you have to wonder how long it will be before, you know, some new GRU unit or subgroup, because I mean, you know, 29155 has more or less been rolled up. None of these guys can fly outside of Russia, at least not to Europe or NATO EU countries anymore. But there's got to be others that have been formulated, you know, as a, as a result of the success of this pioneer group. How long before they, they decide to wash up on North American territory and start setting off bombs here or trying to conduct assassinations. I, you know, it really, you know, things that, that during the Cold War you could never have imagined happening are now happening in the 21st century. Yeah. Extraordinary development. Yeah. If I may add, if I may add just a, just a small point, one one positive note here is that sometimes there are things, uh, I mean, I mean those, these ex, uh, exposures actually influence domestic or local things in a positive way. So, for example, until these GRU revelations came to light, actually the, the Czech government was very close to actually giving a nuclear power plant contract to Rosatom, a Russian state-owned company. And now because of this, it's basically unacceptable. And there is like a political consensus at the Czech side saying Rosatom is never getting this nuclear power plant deal. Because if you could imagine it, like we could come back to the case of of Hungary, where there's a nuclear power plant called Pax2, which is essentially an elite capture operation of Russia against Hungarian political elite. Yeah. So, and this is what Viktor Orban went to a couple of years ago. Uh, Russia was very close to getting it here now in the Czech Republic. But thanks to those GRU revelations just two weeks ago, this becomes a political no-go. So that public, the public actually is, is very clear over that this is unacceptable. And it seems that the government will have to drop it, which is very good news for because in, in all of this light. Yeah. Well, you know, again, I mean, they, the, the FSB assassinated Zelenham Kongashvili in central Berlin, and it didn't lead to the cancellation of Nord Stream 2. One wonders, I mean, does an, a German ammunition depot have to get blown up or a German military installation attacked where the German political class decides, you know, their energy security needs to be completely um, independent of, of Russia. Jakob, it was great to, to have you on and we, we must have you back. Um, we've had several of your colleagues from the, Cent- the European Values on here before and it's, it's really incredible work that you guys are doing. So please keep it up. Thanks so much, Mike. Okay. Uh, you've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss. Thanks again.